the hiatus is over. Welcome back into the Records and Wrist podcast. Feels great to hear that Guster intro once more. I've got a few episodes here that I'm going to publish within a relatively short time period of each other that I'm just dubbing perhaps lazily, the lost episodes. In truth, I did not lose them. I have had these interviews and episodes in the can for a few years, in fact. But long story short, TLDR, life gets in the way. You get kids, you move, all this stuff. Work, obviously, at the top of that list. It just got got a little bit busy, and I got too lazy not getting these up. But I'm going to get them up for you. And then after that, yes, the intention will be to get more new episodes coming in the can as we steer toward fall of 2019 and then the winter after that. But this one in particular has to do with the Rolling Stones. I talk with author Rich Cohen, who helped uh, produce the, the now defunct HBO show Vinyl. So there was actually a part of this podcast that we dedicated to talking about that, but I chopped that out. You will not hear that part. He also has a book on the Rolling Stones. We get into that. And if you are a Stones fan, I think you will truly be informed, entertained, enlightened by this conversation. Rich has some pretty good stories about being with the Stones and with Mick Jagger decades ago when he was working and doing work for Rolling Stone. So enjoy this one. There will be more episodes coming very shortly. And if you have any sort of ideas, any kinds of episodes or guests, be always just feel free to at me on Twitter at Matt Norlander. And for those that did reach out to me multiple times uh, about getting the podcast going again, I heard you. I appreciate that. And for the very vocal contingent waiting for that follow-up episode with Steve Lillywhite, I'm going to try and get that done very soon, I promise. Um, You'll notice the audio quality in here is a little bit different because the equipment that I was using a few years ago is different from how you're hearing me now. But regardless, let's get into it. Um, Had to make a few edits, but I don't think they're too noticeable. It's me and Rich Cohen talking about the Rolling Stones. But I am not a huge Stones fan. It's uh, one of those things about me. You know, I don't love Wilco, and they're one of the most critically adored bands out there. I just can't get into most Wilco. Some Wilco I'm cool with. With the Stones, there's like five or six songs that I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of dig that stuff. But for the most part, I've never truly uh, fallen for the band. Huge, huge, huge Beatles guy. Um, and the Stones, for whatever reason, have just never truly clicked with me. And it's always been something of a mystery to me. But, as is the rule in this podcast, I like to bring on people to talk about artists that I might not be huge fans of, uh, because I like to expand my own uh, palette and get more of an idea of why certain artists might be great and what I might be missing. So, uh, this is a really, really special episode. I'm bringing on Rich Cohen, who is a a fellow Connecticut resident, by the way. Um, He is an author. He is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. He's also a co-creator of the HBO original series, Vinyl, which uh, wrapped up its first season in early 2016. Uh, he, along with Terrence Winter, our co-creators with Martin Scorsese and, yes, Mick Jagger. So that's pretty awesome. Rich, thanks for coming on, man. And um, let's talk Stones here. So you just you just haphazardly dropped. Yeah, I was on the I was on the road with the Stones. It was uh, 94, 96, man. I, these tours they just blend together. I just can't quite remember. So. Did you get a sign? I mean, were you just given kind of carte blanche by the magazine back then, two decades ago, to follow them? When you say on the road, were you on, like, did you hit up 12, 14, 16 cities with them over the course of writing one huge piece, a bunch of different dispatches? What was that? Well, the way it worked was I was very young. I think I was 25. And um, I was just, you know, becoming a writer. 
And I'd started doing little stories for Rolling Stone, and I was told that they wanted to actually hire me. And um, I went in to have an interview with the editor, who's Jan Wenner, who started the magazine and is sort of, you know, yes. very important guy himself. And a friend of mine, who is my editor, actually worked my story, said, look, Jan's going to ask you at some point what story you'd most want to write. And don't tell him the truth, because whatever you tell him, he's not going to give you that assignment. So about halfway through our interview, Jan said, what story would you most like to write? And I wanted to write about the stone. So I said, I want to write about Bob Dylan. I've never written about Bob Dylan for them. But about uh. eight months after I got there and written some other stories, I got a call from the managing editor at the time, who was sort of like the head editor under Jan. And he said, what are you doing this summer? I said, nothing. He said, how'd you like to go to Toronto, hang around with the Rolling Stones and watch them put together their show for their Voodoo Lounge tour, which was their new record. So... Basically, I just got on a plane like that night and flew up to Toronto, Canada, got in at night. Uh, this woman, Jane Rose, who's sort of Keith's, I don't know what you'd call her, Keith's everything, you know, kind of got me in a car and said, let's go see him. And I thought I was shocked and I realized we're on rock and roll time here. And they only start rehearsing at midnight. And we drove out to this little elementary school in the suburbs of Toronto. It's deserted. And you think like, what would the kids think if they knew what was going on in their school at night? Wow. You know, and in the... Um, Jim, I walk in first and I just hear the riff from Brown Sugar going through the whole entire school. We follow it back to its source and there are the stones. It's just the stones and a guy, uh, engineer, and they're just standing around this gym with their instruments and they get in a circle and they talk and they decide what song they should play and they argue about it. And they, when they come to some agreement, the engineer puts the song on a CD and they sit there and they listen to it. They listen to themselves and then he plays it again and they play over it. And often Ron Wood is writing chords down because uh, he, you know, he's copying the work of either Brian Jones or Mick Taylor, the earlier guitar players. And then they play it. They play it two or three times. And if they feel like they like it and there's some life in it, they write it on a big board. And they go through that process, probably doing like five or six songs a night from about midnight until like 7 a.m. And then the cars come and take them back to their houses. Charlie Watts stayed at the hotel where I stayed. And they did that, I think, for like two weeks. And I just hung out and watched that and hung out with them and hung out with their entourage, which was, you know, roadies, assistants, people traveling with them, the guy running the tour. And then I went back to New York and I uh, wrote the story. And it was a cover story and it was, you know, very exciting for me. Big story. And they liked it. And I went back up and got to see them do this warm up gig in a little bar they played. It was like the greatest musical night of my life, just the Stones playing in like a bar with 300 people. And then about a couple weeks after that, I got a call from Jan saying, why don't, why don't you go meet the Stones on the road? And then I went back on the road with them and I wasn't with them for a huge amount of time, but for like three or four cities and then ending up back at Radio City Music Hall where they played uh, at the MTV Music Awards. And, um, and that was really cool because I just hung out with them backstage and. Keith and Ron Wood were just sitting with acoustic guitars playing like Hank Williams tunes and George Jones tunes. And then um, my favorite thing is after they rehearsed in this empty stage, I was just watching them in the arena. We're walking off stage and we run into Bruce Springsteen and Jagger and Bruce Springsteen sort of like exchange words. And Jagger says, oh, this I want you to meet my good friend, Rich Cohen. Wow. And people always ask me, have you ever met Bruce Springsteen? I go, yeah, Mick Jagger introduced us. That is, okay, hold on, <laughs> let's just rewind a few things here. First of all, uh, where'd you go to school and how did you even get your foot in the door at Rolling Stone? Well, I went to school. At, I went to Tulane. Okay. And um, 
I was, you know, my brother, I'm the youngest brother. It's a big, I come to this music from the perspective of a younger brother because my brother had the stereo and I had to listen through his closed door. Mm-hmm. And um, my brother and sister went to law school and the feeling was that I should go to law school or something. My father was very big into that. As a matter of fact, I wanted to play pro hockey and my father assigned me a favorite player, which was Ken Dryden. And the reason was Ken Dryden went to law school first, you know? So that was a big, big thing. And it even reached a point where I got in a big fight with him and said I didn't want to go to law school. And he sort of gave in and I thought I'd won this fight. And then like about a month later, I started getting in the mail rejection letters from schools I had never applied to. He just had gone off and applied in my name to all these law schools. Anyway, I got a job. I got into a law school and I deferred it and I wanted a summer job. And I applied for a job at The New Yorker, not knowing anybody there. And I got a job in a completely fluky way, which isn't even worth going into, but it was just a fluke having to do with the connection I made with the person who interviewed me. Everybody else there is from like Ivy League schools and all that. I'm from Tulane. And um, I was a messenger. And while I was a messenger, I started writing these little things from the front of the magazine called Jewels, which were in goings on about town. And after a while, they started getting published. And I got very excited by that. I mean, just writing something and having it appear in print. And I just started writing stuff for everybody I meet and everybody I know and sending them everywhere. And I had a friend that left the New Yorker and went to work at Rolling Stone and then left Rolling Stone to go to work for Newsweek. And they needed somebody to fill in last minute for a story he couldn't do because he was leaving. He recommended me. I wrote this story. It went really well. And then very quickly, I was writing stories for them. And then they gave me a contract to work there. And, you know, my being very young had a lot to do with me getting that Stones assignment, I think, which is the idea was the Stones had kind of broken up in the late 1990s and they got, I mean, late 1980s and they'd gotten back together. And all the people who wrote about them were the same group of people who were their contemporaries. And the idea was to get someone of a different generation, someone younger to get a fresh perspective on them. And that was me. And the fact that it's like, it's so somewhat random. I mean, they're your, your first love of, of music for, you know, first favorite band and, you know, perhaps your favorite band ever, and you just happened to land the assignment. That just, uh, I mean, I, I'm. Mm. How long between them saying, "All right, we want you to go to Toronto," they're rehearsing, "Go give us a, go give us a story here." How long between you getting that news and actually going to Toronto? I mean, did you have two days to think about it and get your life in order like that, or did you have to like kind of sit on it for a few weeks and prep and maybe even to a certain extent uh, overthink what you might do? You know, it's all from my memory and memory does weird things about stuff like little details like that that you didn't write down or anything. But in mine, the way I remember it is I went like almost that night. It was an immediate thing, which is here's this opportunity and the Rolling Stones have agreed to sort of let this and they knew they had to be told who I was and everything and probably shown stuff I had written. I mean, all later I figured that out because I was naive about it, you know. So um, and it was sort of like okay, let's do it. Let's do it now. Get him up here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So they just called me and I just went out to LaGuardia and I got on a plane to Toronto and I was there almost immediately. It was so fast, you know? Were you overly self-conscious or nervous about the actual reporting process and what you were going to write? Did you have internal conflicts over how to present the story uh, as, you know, objectively as you could, even though you had... uh, such deep 
you know, ties to, to the band and having loved them for so long. What was that like for you at such a young, young age to be given that? And did you know at the time it was going to be a cover story or was that not necessarily promised right off the bat? I think I had to know it was going to be a cover story because the Rolling Stones, whenever they get written about, they're a cover story. Fair enough. And also the magazine's called Rolling Stone. I mean, there's a connection there. And at one point, actually, Jan Winter and Mick Jagger were in business, I think, as co-owners of Rolling Stone Europe, which failed. So there was this long relationship. And um, I, I had this feeling like, you know, I'm not really an objective reporter on anything unless I know nothing about it. And I think that the main job, if you're like writing a thing like this, is just to make sure that the reader knows exactly who you are, you know, that you know what you're getting. And um, I think I talked in the story about this being my favorite band and about the importance of these songs. And that's even where the where the title of the book comes from, because I was explaining all this to Keith Richards, like well, first or second night. And he started listening to me and he goes, wait a second, what year were you born? And I said, 1968, which was shocking to him, you know? And he started to laugh and he said, well, geez, I should be asking you questions. You tell me, I don't know, what's it like to live in a world where the Rolling Stones were always there, where it was always the sun and the moon and the Rolling Stones. It's his line. Which you is know? the name of your book. Right, that's his line. So um, I was so focused at that point on it's hard to explain to people but i really didn't go there as a fan i was so focused on this being a huge opportunity for my career as a writer and staying out of law school and being able to do what i wanted and by that point i had new heroes who were writers you know who i was trying to write like so i was so focused on doing being a professional and doing a good job and i was worried about the reporting and i was thinking what am i going to write and what if it doesn't work you know mm-hmm. and what if i'm the one who screws up the cover story about the rolling stones that i kind of didn't really sit back and process the weirdness of the situation that it wasn't very long before that i was sitting in my bedroom at home in illinois listening to these guys and now i'm in this gym with just me and them night after night but I was so busy, you know, trying to get everything down, take notes of everything, watch everything, be cool, not seem like a nut or a fan. You know, when this book came out, people are like, well, where are the pictures? We need pictures of you and them. I'm like, I don't really have any. I have a couple, you know. But the fact is, first of all, it was before cameras, cell phones. Right. And second of all, I would never take a, say, hey, would you take a picture with me? It immediately mean, means you're a fan. You destroy everything by doing that, you know. I still feel that way, actually. So there were some pictures, but there were pictures taken by them because they knew later on or by whoever was there, someone took some pictures and gave them to me because somebody knew that it would be important to me later. But at the moment, I was so focused on I am a writer from Rolling Stone and I'm going to do a good job on this story that I wasn't really going, whoa. Um, We'll get to the entire career arc of the band in just a few minutes, but to kind of still stay with that story as you reported it. Can, for those listening that are maybe casual fans of the Stones, or maybe came late to them, if I have any young listeners who weren't, you know, <laughs> as crazy as it is, maybe there are people listening to this podcast who were not alive in 1994, 95, 96. It's certainly possible, and I hope so. But what was the reputation and state of the band at that point, um, if you could kind of fill people in? Because they certainly were not who they were in the late 60s into the 60s. Well, they were they they were past their prime, you know. Mm-hmm. They had broken up. They had said a lot of nasty things about each other in the tabloids. Mick Jagger had gone off to a solo career that wasn't very successful, you know. He'd come back to the band. You felt like maybe he didn't even want to be back with the band. 
Um, um, and they had, you know, their great, great records were years behind them, mostly because their great records came out of them working and writing together. And if they can't do that, the record music's not there. And, um, you know, but they were still the Rolling Stones, the greatest rock band in the world. They remain that. And they seemed to me at the time to be as old as anyone who'd ever lived. They were about my age now. I think they were like 49 years old. I'm 47. But they seemed very, very old to me. And um, they seemed like they had been through everything. Everything that could happen to a person had happened to them. And they were taking a lot of crap from the press, not me, but from, you know, the press that stands up and they did a press conference about being old. And they were being called the Strolling Bones. And their tour was being called the Geritol Tour. And Keith, Keith spoke a line that ended up on the cover, which is he said, you know what? All you people slagging us about the Geritol tour, wait till you get to be our age and see how you run. I mean, they probably were his age. You know, he said, um, you know, we're still on some night. We're still a good band. And on some nights, maybe the best band in the world. And we're still a bunch of tough old bastards. String us up and we won't die. And that was the cover line on the magazine. Huh. Um, the tour, you know, uh, that was still definitely an like people still tour. Don't get me wrong. People still tour arenas and stadiums plenty now, but I feel like the, uh, into the mid nineties, that was still a very like bankable, healthy thing for a lot of acts, like a lot more acts in 1994 or 1996 could count on a 25, 30, 35 city arena tour, more so across the board than maybe now but was that was this was this billed as as anything but other than was it you know i know that they were touring off an album but uh were they considered just despite that totally a nostalgia act was it anything of a, of a comeback i know steel wheels in 89 was a huge record toward kind of making them somewhat relevant again but what was the uh kind of the driving focus behind the tour from the bands uh, perspective and then nationally if you even remove the press and just music fans in general um, how were how are they kind of taking the stones in that in that year well it's funny you mention that because now that a lot of my focus on the story was the business side um, I, I don't know why I focus so much on that because that was what so much what it seemed like it seemed like a big giant corporation and you know I interviewed guys like Michael Cole who was their promoter and I interviewed all the money guys about you know how this thing works as a business and at what point do they start making money and can they lose money and what's at stake? Um, I don't think there was any special reason to do it other than that's what they do. You know, when I asked Keith Richards that question specifically, oh, why do it? And don't you ever feel like it's done? And he sort of said, you know, his whole philosophical thing is the music doesn't exist unless it's in front of a live audience. You know, the Beatles at a certain point stopped touring partly because there's crowds would yell so much they couldn't even hear themselves play, but they stopped touring and they said they'd gone. I think John Lennon said something like we'd gone as far as you can go on the road. And Keith Richards whole philosophy is there is no end of the road. You know, you can go forever. And that was a big thing he said to me, which is you have the band, you know, and you have the, the songs, but the, the other element is the crowd. And until you're in front of the crowd, the music doesn't really exist. That's what brings out, the whole thing, the energy of the crowd and the band and the whole thing. So I was really pressing them on that. And also I was pressing them on, because I'd seen them in that little club. Why don't you play, why instead of playing these giant arenas where people don't really see how, what a great band you are, why don't you go around and play like Elvis Costello did or something, play the Beacon for 30 nights, you know, 
but they were just saying that they couldn't do that because there was too much demand for their tickets and it would be impossible. Hmm. How many, uh, did you get any chances after that tour, um, to be with the stones in the years since on any, on any other tours or any other shows or any other? Yeah. Well, the next tour I was working with Jagger as this on the screenplay so I was traveling around with him a bit just so I could work with him when he wasn't performing. Okay. And that was the next tour, which was, I think, called Bridges to Babylon. Yes. So I was on them. I was on them with that. I was with them on that tour a bit, too. So I had really that experience on those two tours. What was it like to be a fan of this band and then have a lot of that, you know, naturally stripped away as you get to know them as human beings? What is that like? Well, it's almost like my respect for them as musicians kind of grew. It, it actually, because I had loved them as a kid listening to the records, and then I'd seen them in these arena shows, which didn't really compare to when I'd go to college and go to little clubs crowded full of people, where there's a real uh, intensity to it. And, um, and just like one of the great experiences was before the concerts, before the shows, outside these huge arenas with an area set up almost like a carnival with tents. And Mick Jagger would be off in his area by himself, usually warming up his voice, singing scales. And Keith Richards and Ron Wood would sit in this room they called the guitar room that had like 25, 30 of the coolest guitars you've ever seen. The snooker table, couches, and they would just sit there, smoke cigarettes, drink Jack Daniels, and play every old country song they could just to warm up their fingers. And that session was usually better than the concert. And that session showed you just what incredible musicians they were and just how much fun they had playing. So actually, though I'd always respected them as the Rolling Stones, I really got to see, you know, this music is just everything. And, and the, the, the depth of knowledge and the history of American music, it was just sort of awesome. Uh, any particular <laughs> surreal... Of, of all the times you've been around the band, any surreal scene moment instance, whether, you know, with them or perhaps, you know, you're waiting to meet them and you, and you see any sort of, you know, crazed fans or anything. Is there any uh, particular scenes that, that stand out all these years later? There were a whole bunch. One thing I remember is I was with Mick, just Mick Jagger and his bodyguard and me. I know, and we were going somewhere and we sat down in a restaurant and we're in a booth. And it's like on one side of the booth are me and the bodyguard. And on the other side is Jagger and like a drunk fan fell into the booth next to him and started talking to him. And he just looked like, whoa, you know, like I mean, you just got to see that, yeah. the, that that quickly things could turn very bad, you know, and you really got the sense that ever since John Lennon had been assassinated, killed, these guys at that level are always on the lookout. You know, huh. things can get very ugly. I just got this vibe from it, this kind of freaked out vibe. And the guy was just talking about some show he had seen in the 70s. And, you know, he was kind of drunk and like a little bit seemingly aggressive, like a drunk guy. And that was really intense. Um, another experience I always remember is a show in North Carolina after, you know, before the encore, all the entourage goes out and waits like in a motorcade police cars on either side it's like the elvis has left the building you know and they're out there singing i think it was jumping jack flash and there's like the police car and the first van and in the first van mick jagger and his bodyguard ride alone and then the second van and in that van is the rest of the band including me so it's like charlie watts keith richards ron wood me 
couple other people, and we're sitting waiting for them. You hear the song, and they come tumbling out. They run in. They get in the van. Keith is just can't get his breath. He's like wheezing. I actually have I, I have asthma, and I have an inhaler, and I offered it to him. You know, and he's like, oh, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine in 20 minutes. I give everything away, which is like a shock because he doesn't even seem to move very much on stage, but he's just soaked in sweat. And he turned to me. It's like a great moment um, because it's a line from Raging Bull. And he goes, hey, Joey, put my robe on right. Would you, Joey, would you put on my robe right? Jeez, man. <laughs> this is just too wild. It's 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 pretty amazing that, um, I don't know, and maybe this is some some naivete on my behalf but um you know they 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 really let you in and and jagger obviously clearly you became someone um who he respected and trusted um there's no way you could have possibly foreseen your life to have kind of taken this turn um what is a an element or two about mixed personality that might not be that well known. I mean, listen, diehard fans that have come to this podcast and, and sought it out that if that could, you know, recite a million things about the Stones, they might know it. But if there are, there are a couple of things about him that aren't just, you know, easy, easy, easily spotable things that people can spot with his personality, Rich, what would they be? You know, who is the guy behind the microphone away from the stage? You know, when he's at home, uh, what are some of his habits, tendencies that you picked up on? Well, here's the weird thing about Mick Jagger, which is he's a bit of a mystery. You know, even to people that are around him all the time, that's his power as a pop star. You know, these really serious stars have this ability to sort of be overexposed, but you still know nothing about them somehow. It's like they have they have this, you know, when you first meet somebody, what you want to do is quickly figure out who they are, where they come from, and put them in a box, and then you can move on. And for whatever reason, Jagger presents himself in a way that you can never quite peg him, so you can never move on. And that's his power. It's something that Bob Dylan has, I think that Prince had, yes. that David Bowie had. So if I'd always say to somebody, Here, here's a good test. Imagine what Keith Richards is doing right now. And they go, oh, it's easy. Sitting at home, playing the guitar, smoking pot. Okay. Imagine what Mick Jagger's doing right now. I have no idea. <laughs> and that's, you know, so I was with him a lot, but I couldn't really tell you inside what he's like. I mean, I... I that one of his great abilities is no matter what era it is he's able to find people who have something to offer creatively to him and work with them and get what he needs to keep reinvigorating himself he's got unbelievable taste and he kind of knows everything and he's curious about everything so on off nights nights when the stones weren't performing he would go out to just local nightclubs just to dance and to hear what songs were playing what he could borrow, what he could learn from, what was getting people going on the dance floor. And he would bring that back and then Keith would fight with them. And that was always the tension, Keith sticking to the blues and Mick bringing all this other stuff in. And um, I remember one night he kind of went out with all these kids and the club closed and he brought basically all the kids back to his hotel to continue the party. And he's like 50 years old at this point. So, um, you know, he's a, he's a very open guy to influences from the world, but he's just of such a large magnitude as a star that he's very good at managing it the you know you could easily say that the the rolling stones are the greatest rock and roll band of all time for many reasons but one of them would be unprecedented longevity because when you think about the greatest rock acts in american music history you know we know that the beatles broke up never got back together uh floyd similarly 
broke up. Now they've had different random reincarnations, but they, you know, they couldn't stay together. Zeppelin and the Who suffered the loss of, you know, their driving forces uh, behind the kit. No one has been able. I mean, the Dead went for a long time, but they suffered the death of Garcia, and so since after that, it's still not totally the same. The Stones, while threatened with with breakups, basically have gone on together for 54 years now or so. Yeah. Um, what you mentioned, Jagger going to clubs, picking up on you know contemporary styles and trends and whatnot. If that's one of the reasons, what are some of the other reasons? That well, they could be together and 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 still perform. I mean, listen, it's been an ongoing like joke about them performing and being old and stage. I get that. It's happened since the early '90s, and you're well aware of that. But the point is, like, they're still freaking going, dude. Like, this is insane. They people expected Keith Richards to die 30 years ago, you know, and that's another kind of ongoing, uh, easy easy fodder and easy joke. But yet they've managed to still go. Like, the drive is still there. What are the elements that have led up to this? Well, it's a, it's a really good question. It's a question that I asked a lot of people, like, why did the Stones continue and everybody else faded away or died or, or split up? And the reason I always got it is Mick Jagger. You know, Mick Jagger has this drive and he pushes this thing. And if not for him, they would have broken up in the late 70s. And they kind of did break up. And the fact is that Jagger has this ability, and it's all the stuff we're talking about, to sort of forge ahead. It's, it's admirable to live in the present tense, not to get bogged down in petty little things. So even, you know, Keith can write this book where he says incredibly mean things about Jagger, things that if somebody said about me, I probably would never talk to them again. But he realizes that the stones are important and he just keeps going ahead. She just keeps going ahead. So I think the main element that all those other bands are missing is a guy with that kind of drive who's also very savvy and, you know, very intelligent. Also, they always had as a model the the artists that they loved early in their career. And that would be guys like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. Muddy Waters basically played until they carried him away in a box. And they always that had that as a fallback and as a model, which is, let's just see how far we can go with this thing. And that's actually what Keith was, said, was saying to me in 1996, which is, let's see how far we can take this. Nobody's taken a rock band this far. That was in the mid-90s. Let's just see how far we can go. And here they are playing in Havana, the first rock band in Cuba after, you know, the Cold War, the Cold War with Cuba ends. So um, I think that the thing that drives them is Mick Jagger and the fact that this is what they do. You know, it's sort of like, what else do they do? They play music and there's the most demand for their music when they play it as the Rolling Stones. Don't know if you would have an answer to this, but the only band that I think could come close to rivaling them in longevity, also certainly with style based in the blues, is the Allman Brothers. Now, obviously, the Allmans lose Dwayne at uh, the all-too-young age in his early 20s, and the Allmans aren't really the same band after that, but they you know, they, they do have different incarnations and people coming going from the band, whereas the Stones, while they've had some guys leave and others die you know the heart of the band has consistently been there whereas you could argue that Dwayne was very much a the heart of the, the spirit of the almonds i don't know if you ever got to speaking with keith about that because i feel like there have been like i i, I so enjoy the almond brothers uh rich and yet i the stones just don't grab me as much but i can i can hear similarities in some ways with the sound whereas the almonds certainly are much more likely to listen they're much more likely to go on a 20 minute jam session and that's not exactly the stones thing but i didn't know if 
if them being contemporaries and had any sort of of impact on the Stones, or if there was, um, if one band might have inspired the other, or if there were any others active at the time that inspired, not not like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf, but um, and not necessarily Beatles, because by the time the Stones really started going, the Beatles were done. But I don't know if any of those contemporary bands also fueled any sort of sense of, of rivalry or competition or just pure drive uh, with Mick Keith and the Stones. I think that what the Stones did was, you know, they kind of mainstreamed the blues. They didn't do it on purpose. They kind of brought American music back to America. They heard this music and they attempted to copy it. And in the process of copying it, they turned it into something new. And what's interesting is when they came back to Chicago with this music, those blues musicians admired it because they re recognized it wasn't just a copy. It was something new. It was they'd done something and they had a different sound to them. And whenever you hear any of these bands, like even the Allman Brothers, and they're doing very similar thing, you know, they're taking kind of this black Delta blues music and they're they're converting it into something new. It, you can hear similarities across all of them and they all are influenced by individual parts of the band. The Stones, after their 69 tour and before Altamont, they'd written these songs on the road and they really wanted to record them while the band was really hot and playing well. And they went to Muscle Shoals to record them. And I believe that's where the Allman Brothers yes. recorded them, recorded. And there was very much the idea that they were very aware of the Allman Brothers, their sound, and getting some inspiration from that sound in that place. And in Brown Sugar, Jagger sings um, Scartled Slaver, I think is the line. But a lot of people insist he was singing Sky Dog Slaver. Mm -hmm. And Sky Dog was a reference, I think, to Greg Allman. Uh, very interesting. Um, that's a complete non sequitur. This is my only uh, Rolling Stone story that I have, and it doesn't really. There's, I'm just going to share it because why not? Um, so this is like, I don't know. It probably would have been 15 years ago or so. So uh, I have a cousin who was who did some modeling, and she was in New York City at the time, and she was at a bar. And this might just speak to, you know, generational differences and whatnot. But um, so she's at the bar with, I don't know, say five or six of her friends who also happen to be models. Um, and or it's a nightclub or whatever. And it's, it's you know, midnight, one in the morning, whatever. And uh, she goes up to get a drink. And this guy next to her says oh you know you know sweetie let me let, what's your name let me buy let me buy you a drink or whatever and um she immediately is just kind of thrown and uh made a little uncomfortable and after about 10 15 seconds a small talk she was at the bar by herself goes back to her friends at the table over there and whoever else might have been with them and and she goes oh, i that guy over there he just <laughs> wanted to buy me a drink he's just old and he was just kind of creepy and, and one of the people at the table I, it goes do you know who the hell that was and she's like no and he goes that's keith richards and she goes who's keith richards uh, i mean it's just it, like crazy right i mean the cousin at the time must have been 19 or 20 years old right she had no idea like, whatsoever so that's my only stone story now how did you 
how did you discover the band? How and when and why did you fall in love? Because we all have bands that we're, you know, the, the, to my my thing has always been the, the ones that get you forever are obviously the ones that get you when you're 14, 15, 16, or 17, when you're you're most emotionally vulnerable and emotionally available. And so the ones that, you know, that you really discover, those stick with you for life. So how did you come upon the Rolling Stones once upon a time? And I guess the what, the late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, well, it was a little earlier for me. It was like, I was like 12. So that'd be like 1980. The first time I saw him was Tattoo You, which I think was 1981. And I think what it was is I was sitting in my bedroom and my brother had moved up to the attic, my older brother, and had this incredibly great record collection, like a thousand records and a great stereo. And it really wasn't allowed up to his room. And I always thought the room was like the frontier. It was beyond all justice. You could do whatever you wanted up there. And um I just, you know, the records I had at that time were like, I remember the first real record I bought was Leonard Skinner, Golden Platinum. And I had a bunch of sort of kids records and I put that on top. So it looked like I'd have a lot of really cool records. And my, I remember a friend of my brother said, hey man, look at your brother's record collection. He's got really cool records. He goes, no, nah, look underneath. It's all garbage under that. It's kind of humiliating. And um, I heard, I was lying in my bedroom downstairs and he had the stereo cranked up and I heard the cowbell that introduces honky tonk women still one of my favorite songs in the world. And it was like, it led, picked me up and carried me up to his room. And I was completely hooked on them after that. And I started just weirdly going through the records chronologically, saving money and buying the first record they released and the second and the third and going all the way through it till I got up. And, but I remember when some girls came out, you know, I remember that being a big deal. And I remember when emotional rescue came out. Those are the first records I was really aware of. And I always thought the last great record they did was Tattoo You, which I was in junior high school and I went to that show and sort of researching and doing this book and talking to old producers, like the big shock for me that was kind of just upsetting was that um, all those great songs like Start Me Up and uh, all the great songs in that album, they actually were all from earlier sessions. None of them were recorded for Tattoo You. Uh, the songs were basically they can keep not talking to each other at that time and they owed their record label to record and the producer is Chris Kimsey and worked on all the records going way back said, look, I know enough good songs that we just didn't put on the earlier records. I know where they are. I can go find them and put them together and we could deliver a record. And he was able to give it a cohesive sound and make it sound like this great record that they actually recorded together. And um, the famous one is Start Me Up, which is sort of their last real big hit, which had been recorded 10 years before for Tattoo You. I mean, for uh, Goat's Head Soup, I think, as a as a reggae song. Really? So, yeah. And actually, Keith, record, you know, because they were heavily influenced by reggae. And Keith had this whole thing where he let Peter Tosh live in his house in Jamaica. And he rec- they recorded with them. And they tried to sign, I forgot, you know, they, they, it, it, they tried to sign somebody. I forget. And they signed Peter Tosh. Jagger did that duet with Peter Tosh. Peter Tosh ended up kind of hating them and feeling abused by them. It's a whole other, I was going to get into it in the book, but it's a book in and of itself, sort of the Stones in Jamaica. It's just a weird, it's like Hemingway in Paris. It's a weird cultural interlude. Interesting. Interesting. All right, let's 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 rank off your 10 favorite, 10 to 1 Rolling Stone LPs, because every band-centric episode has a ranking of the studio records, and they've got, they've got 29, so we don't have to go through all 29. <laughs> but if you have a top 10, Rich, uh, right. feel free to run down, and with each one, Give a little, uh, 
give a little ditty as to as to why you're placing it there and what you consider you know highlights on the album or any nuggets behind the scenes stories maybe associated with any of the songs or anything on them um okay so i would say my 10th record would be uh voodoo lounge just because that's the record that they had recorded when i was with them and um it had the song love is strong which is i got this great harmonica solo by jagger that's a song the harmonica i watched while they rehearsed that at the mtv music awards and jagger would walk down the aisle playing the harmonica and people don't really realize what a great blues harmonica player mick jagger is and it's one thing keith always said is that he was a great he's a great harmonica player and always criticized him for not singing more like he played the harmonica Hmm. so that just for almost sentimental reasons i would put put it there number nine I would say would be England's newest hit makers because that was their first, you know, record in the United States. And it was clearly in reference a title to the Beatles, you know, the newest hit makers after the Beatles. And the Stones are really positioned as, you know, the anti-Beatles. Keith Richards sure. said, well, when we showed up, the Beatles were wearing the white hats. So what did that leave us? So that decision to almost market them as bad to the Beatles good leads all the way up to like sympathy for the devil or play with fire that became their their image it was going to be love from the beatles and sex from the stones and that album though was really all covers they hadn't started writing their own songs yet but it had great covers on it like route 66 which when they played in clubs in england would close their show and people waited for and um you know muddy water songs and and i always thought and that i just i think that those albums are really you know underrated because like I said, they kind of invented this new thing uh, by trying to copy. And you can really hear why people love them, which is they gave this new thing to the blues that was just so fantastic. All right. So number eight would be Tattoo You, which I was just talking about. It had considered to be their last great record. But I don't really because it's not really a record of the moment. It's almost cast offs and um, from earlier records. It's like outtakes. I considered it the last great record until I really knew how it was made. Okay. But it's got that great guitar sound and it's got Start Me Up and it's got Hang Fire and Little TNA. You know, it's got these great songs on it. So, and it's Keith's guitar. So I don't know what he was doing to it, but his guitar has that very almost like it sounds like something like a machine breaking down in a factory, you know? It's like something coming apart and it's very, very cool. And um, so that would be. You know, that's the last album I went out and thought this is a cohesive album, and that would be right there for me. Okay. And um, number, what are we down to? We're on number seven right now. Number seven, Love You Live. Because it's a lot, really hard to capture the Stones in concert when they're playing well. Like Springsteen, those bootlegs and those concert albums, you kind of hear it, you Definitely. know. But for whatever reason, the Stones, you don't hear it always. The energy is missing from the records. And that record came the closest i think almost to to capturing it and they played and they played a lot of great songs on it they were they had just come off a tour they sounded great and they played you know a mix of covers that had always meant something to them along with you know their own classic songs they play cracking up which is a great uh bo diddley tune and they do a great version of it Manish Boy, which is a great Muddy Waters tune. Around and Around, a great Chuck Berry tune. Three in a row, man. Those Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Muddy Waters. And their first tour outside of London, they toured with Bo Diddley. You know, so, and then they also have Brown Sugar and Sympathy for the Devil and Tumbling Dice and, 
Happy, which is a great Keith Richards song. They, it's just, it's, I think it's of the, of the live albums, which they used to re- routinely put out. It sort of comes the closest to getting them, you know, to getting, getting the energy to show. Okay. So number six, Goat's Head Soup. Now I'll tell you a weird story. So Brian Jones uh, founded the Rolling Stones, really. It's his band. He put the audition in the newspaper. He hired those guys. He chose the songs. He was the best musician. He was the one who could play slide guitar. And um, basically, over time, he lost control of his band. He lost control of his band because naturally attention goes to the lead singer. And that was Jagger. And then Richards and Jagger started writing songs together, and that became the whole voice of the band. And as he and when Satisfaction hit, it was like the over and out for Brian Jones. He went completely nuts. And there's a story where he went down to Morocco to some festival of Pan, took a bunch of LSD, and they brought in a goat to be sort of sacrificed in this festival. And he looked at the goat and said, that's me. And then he died. Whoa. And then they released Goat's Head Soup. <laughs> you know, so there were always these kind of things that it was a reference to Brian. I didn't really, I don't really believe that. I think that they were cutting it in Jamaica and Goat's Head Soup is a thing in Jamaica. Again, it plays with the idea of voodoo and yeah. the whole black arts thing we're talking about, which almost started as a marketing thing. But there is that other element of Brian Jones, you know, not being there. And then Goat's Head Soup is sort of the, the they had this run of the four great records. I call it the golden run. Goat's Head Soup just missed being at that level. It was almost like into the 70s now and kind of hung over and recording in Jamaica. It's got great songs on it, like Silver Train and Angie, which Keith Richards wrote uh, in a clinic in Vivi, Switzerland, sitting in a bed as he was recovering from, you know, heroin withdrawal. And um, it's got Do, 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 Heartbreaker and Coming Down Again. It's just kind of like a a hangover record in a way. And it's really, I think it's really, really a great record. And then number five, which genuinely is their last great record is some girls and some girls, I think was sold more records than any other record they did, you know, and some girls um, was interesting because the stones were already fighting. They already were having their problems, but it was like, they were stirred back to action because I believe punk rock had become the thing. Punk rock kind of was very similar to the stones. It was like the the Stones were reborn as these punk rockers. And I think, um, who was it? One of those guys from the Sex Pistols had said that the Rolling Stones were old and finished and they should get off the stage. Okay. Now, this is interesting because when I was touring with them, I didn't even put this in the book or anything. I just think about it all the time. I don't know why we put it in the book. When I was touring with them, the big band at that moment was Green Day, was just breaking. And uh, Billy Joe from Green Day made a comment about the Stones touring where he said basically the same thing. They're old and done, and I hope I'm not playing like that and looking like that when I'm their age. Really? And by the way, he is that age now. And now he is that age, absolutely. Yeah. And at the time when he said that, I was with Jagger and Richards, and they just sort of laughed. And they just said, wait, we'll just wait and see how he feels about it in a couple of years. You know, mm-hmm. Because, of course, they had said similar things themselves. Mick Jagger said he'd rather be dead than singing Satisfaction when he was 40 years old. He's still singing it now. So Miss You is sort of they're stirred back into action, I think, because they're challenged by these, you know, Sex Pistols, The Clash. And um, and it's almost like 1970s. It's really a New York album. It's 1970s in New York. It's Bianca and cocaine and Studio 54 and disco. And 
And really on it, you hear this, I think of it as like the dialectic of rock and roll. You have the blues, which is the basis for all this stuff, the Stones, the Allman Brothers, the dead in some ways, you know, and then you have disco. And Keith comes back, Mick comes back from the club and he wants to make disco songs and Keith wants blues. And you can hear that fight on the record and it's sort of the synthesis of those two things that make that record so great. So when you listen to songs like Miss You or um, Beast of Burden, they're disco songs, but they have this kind of blues, um, you know, bedrock to them that makes them completely fascinating. So it's almost like intellectually kind of an interesting record in addition to just being a great record. And um, that brings me to number four. These are kind of the accepted, like universally accepted top four, I presume you're going to go to. Yeah, because they are the best. Yeah, so, and you can put them, you can almost put them in any order you want. But what I, is your, what is your order, Rich? All right. So I would say probably just personally, number four, although I'd go back and forth is Sticky Fingers. That's the Andy Warhol cover with the zipper and everything else. And um, which had like a didn't have like an actual zipper when you bought it back in the day on vinyl. Yes, it did. I had a copy with a zipper. Okay. And I don't know how I had it, but I had it. <laughs> I, and and you know you can imagine how expensive it was to make those things. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm guessing they fetch if you can get an original copy these days. I'm sure you can get it for. Instance. Well, also some girls had this cover that they were sued over because they used real celebrities without permission. I had a I had a copy of that. Really. Collector's item like. Farrah Fawcett was on it, all these different people. And you could slide it into the, like, there was, like, different hairstyles. And you'd slide their faces in and show them with different hair. How about that? And they got, you know, they had to change that cover. Interesting. Okay. So that Sticky was up. Fingers at four, which has... Brown Sugar. Brown Sugar, Wild Horses, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, Bitch. Right. Then you got to move, which is, you know, a great, one of these great covers. Sister Morphine, which is kind of written by... Marion Faithful, and then Dead Flowers, which is one of my favorite Stone songs, also just for, you know, the Towns Van Zant cover, which you get in the Big Lebowski. Yeah, so, that's right. Oh, man, I totally forgot about that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying. There's so many good songs on it. It's hard to say it's number four, but I you can't figure out an order. So I put it number three, uh, Beggar's Banquet. Beggar's Banquet, Sympathy for the Devil. That's the session that was filmed by Jean-Luc Godard. You can watch it. It's got, it's really the last album that Brian Jones is really a factor on. He has his last really, really great work on No Expectations. And he sort of like was completely out of it by then, but sort of the fog lifted one day and he did this unbelievable slide guitar solo on No Expectations. It's worth just going back and listening to it. That was how they came to know him. They went into the Ealing Club in London in 1963, Mick and Keith, and saw... Brian Jones playing slide guitar and it completely blew them away. And that moment is almost like the beginning of the Rolling Stones. And you hear it for the last time on No Expectations. And then all it's got Dear Doctor, where Jagger does a really funny sort of comic voice and Parachute Woman. While they were recording this record at Olympic Studios, Olympic Studios caught on fire. And they just they kind of cleared out and came back the day and finished it under an open sky. And it was really the most intense moment of the late 60s. And you kind of hear it on that record. Then Let It Bleed is my number two. And Let It Bleed, you know, it's it's coming. It's got Gimme Shelter. Which is like, so I'm not a huge Stones fan, but that's like undeniably an amazing song, an amazing record, like all of it. That's just, you know, one of the, on the top five best or top 10 best side one track ones ever, I think. Right. It's one of these records where, you know, 
uh, Brian Jones fell in love with Anita Pallenberg. Then Anita Pallenberg left Brian Jones and ends up with Keith Richards. And then she's in, you know, um, the, a movie with Mick Jagger where they're doing like sex scenes. And it's so upsetting to Keith that he would sit outside the set where he knew the movie was being filmed and just sort of sit there in his car for hours. And then he goes back to his friend's apartment and writes Gimme Shelter. And the mood of that is in that song. And then Love in Vain, which is a Robert Johnson song covered in a really interesting way. Country Honk, which is really interesting too, because Country Honk is honky-tonk women, almost reversed engineered. They kind of take the song and they turn it back into country music. And the guy who supposedly actually did that and showed them how to do that was Graham Parsons, mm. who was a huge influence in those years. And on Country Honk, there's this great country fiddle solo by one of the greatest country fiddle players in the world named Byron Berline, who was flown in just to play. And he played, he played it on the street in L.A. And they sort of closed down the street so he could play because they wanted ambient noise. And at one point earlier, you hear a car honk. And it's Phil Kaufman, who is the band's executive nanny in the Cadillac, sort of leans over and honks the horn. Hear all that in there. And then Let It Bleed, which is such a great song. And it's sort of Mick doing that faux country thing he did. You Got the Silver, which is a great Keith Richards song, kind of about Anita Pallenberg. And You Can't Always Get What You Want, which is everything at that moment, um, supposedly written for Marion Faithful, who Jagger was breaking up with to try to get her back. So, um, you know. Another one, I mean, and it's just a great record. It's hard to say it's not number one, but my number one is XL on Main Street. All right, so let me just jump in real quick here. So as a casual um, listener of the Stones, you know, I'm not a huge Stones fan. Here's my impression of Exile. So uh, fact check me, tell me what's right or what's wrong. But here's always been my impression of Exile. It's the one where they went to France, right? And they recorded some of it in France, and it was like a total disaster. Drugs, it took forever. It wasn't like super expensive. It's a double album. And wasn't it released, like, it, I don't know, I'm sure expectations were big because of what the Stones were, but wasn't it, like, pretty panned when it came out? I feel like the legacy of Exile was that it was kind of this huge, massive mess for, like, seven to ten different reasons. <laughs> yeah. And then in the ten years that followed, its reputation only got better and better and better. And I'm sure that was as much about the songs as it was about maybe a lot of the the stuff that came after with the Stones. Am I mostly on the right path there? Right? Yeah. Okay. I would say that's pretty much correct. Why I mean, did they go to France? I've always wondered that. Okay, so basically they found out that Alan Klein, who they they kind of went with when they they went with Alan Klein represented the Beatles ultimately. He represent he was a manager in America. He represented all these people, and he had sort of screwed them up. I won't go into details about it, but as a result of what he did. They had no money. They were broke. And what's worse, Alan Klein had been taking the money. He had to own the rights to the songs. He owned the rights to the songs. That's why when you look at the Stones label, it's not the Stones on a lot of the records. And uh, he didn't withhold for taxes. And in England at the time, they had a 90% or 95% marginal tax rate. So once you made over a certain amount, which wasn't very much, you got to pay 95% of it to British revenue. So basically, they could never pay back their taxes. So they hired this new money guy who is Rupert Lowenstein, who examined the whole situation and said, first, you got to fire Alan Klein. Then you have to basically leave the country and make money somewhere else so you can pay back your tax debt. You'll never do it if you stay here. So they worked out, Lowenstein worked out a deal with France. He had some relationships with there where they had to spend some certain minimum amount of money and then they wouldn't have to pay tax. They could make money 
and they could pay off their debt and try to square themselves financially. And they, they found a house for Keith in the south of France in a little town called um, Villefranche, which is like not far from Nice. And it's this beautiful, tiny little fishing town. And he found this old mansion that supposedly, according to the lore, had been Gestapo headquarters in World War II. And Keith always insisted there were little swastikas on the air vents. And they they start, they knew they had to make a record. You know, um, they owed a record. They needed to make money. And they started looking for studios. And none of them really met up to their what they needed. And one of the problems they had was Keith was addicted to heroin. And he had all these kind of needs. So they finally decided the easiest thing would just be recorded at Keith's house. So they went down to the basement of that house, which was this big old basement with little almost like little cubes or, you know, little nooks and crannies. And they readied it as best they could for sound. And they, the musicians had to be in different places connected only by chords. So like Bobby Keys, their saxophone player, he was way down far away from everybody else. Charlie Watts was under the stairs. Everybody was apart, but they were all playing and listening to each other through headphones. And the story is, you know, they would start playing around five, six o'clock at night when Keith sort of woke up, took his heroin, slowly emerged from whatever kind of fog he was in. He had a newborn baby. Marlon Richards was there. Anita Pallenberg was pregnant. They were, you know, getting drugs from what was the French connection. This is the mess you're talking about. Their house was broken into and robbed. Yeah. Graham Parsons was living there, and they eventually had to kick Graham Parsons out because he was such a mess. And um, But they put together this group of unbelievable songs. And what I like about it is it's sort of, it is the hangover. It's like, it's the moment where you switch from LSD and the idea that drugs are aspirational and you're driving towards greater knowledge and epiphany to heroin, which is like, just get rid of all pain, totally numb. And that was like when they realized that the sixties weren't going to leading to the end of the world or a new age, they were just leading to the seventies and really they, and Brian Jones was dead and it was a really bleak time. And all of that, the hope, the sixties and the downer of the seventies and the, um, you know, all all the different musical influences, the blues and the country, it's all on that record. And they took what they had. They basically had to flee the country because they were going to be, the house was going to be raided. And they fled to L.A. And at that point, it really had been Keith's record. He had been in control of those sessions and Jagger came in and sang. And in L.A., Jagger took over and he thought it was a mess and he thinks it's an overrated record. He doesn't like it. You know, it's untidy in a way, which is what I think he doesn't like about it. But it really has this idea that on, on if you look at the record, it's four sides and side A and C are kind of the party and side C and D are the hangover. And that's how it's organized. And it's got a lot of great songs, you know, including what right now is my favorite Stone song at the moment, which is Loving Cup. But it's also got, you know, Sweet Virginia, which is this great kind of Graham Parsons like um country tune and it's got casino boogie where they couldn't even think of lyrics anymore and they used the william s burroughs method jagger and richards where they took newspapers and they cut out single words and dropped them in a hat and just pulled them out of the hat and that's those were their lyrics for the song really and yet the and the record by the way it doesn't have massive radio hits so it's always been interesting how what many consider to be the stones best album did not have you know one hit after another in terms of radio success right and all, there was a big argument like what's the single on this record you know and i think i i think it might have been all down the line was the single and then tumbling dice was another single but see the reason why you, you said it got a bad, poor reception and slowly over time 
it, the claim grew. And I think that that's right. I think that that's like a good lesson for art in general, which is they had these records at the beginning. They, they basically made singles and then they put up, they collected them and they, that was a record. Then they started trying to make records because suddenly you had these LP records and FM radio and they were always kind of trailing after the Beatles. And at some point, the Beatles made Sgt. Pepper's. That messed everybody up because everybody thought they had to make Sgt. Pepper's. And then finally, the Beatles broke up and they had no one to sort of trail after and they had to go do their own thing. And they made those three great records we just talked about, which was, you know, Sticky Fingers, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed. So everyone was expecting another record like that. And instead, you got this different thing. And usually the way it is with critics is they want what they already love slightly different. Yeah. So when you give them something completely different, they say it sucks. They can't even hear it. It's a mess because they're, they're, they're looking on their one template and their one model. But if it's a good record, if it's a really great record or book or poem or anything, it kind of creates its own genre. And then over time, it teaches people how to hear it. And that's what it did. Over time, people that just had an immediate revulsion to it, you know, and didn't like it, it was playing in the background when they were drinking. And they weren't thinking about it. And suddenly they're like, what the hell is this? You know, and they slowly came to see, oh, my God, this is a great record. You know, and that's a little bit of the problem, I think, with the music world now, which is because everything's singles again and everything's the MP3. And think about all the records you might have bought that there were like two songs you liked and a bunch of songs you didn't. But after you listen to it like four or five times, some of those songs you didn't like at first became your favorite song. Absolutely. You got to learn to kind of hear it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> And that doesn't really happen anymore because it's like one and done. You know, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, Rich isn't aware, but in season uh, two here, I actually have an entire episode dedicated to whether the album is dead and if it isn't, uh, what its future is compared to what we thought it might have been a decade ago. So it's just funny that you, you hit on that. Uh, we'll wrap up with this here. Um, for those uh, that are you know, intrigued by the Stones and want to read your book, The Sun and the Moon and the Rolling Stones, if you kind of want to just encapsulate a little bit more of what they can expect within the book outside of you know, a 50-year span of the band's history, what else in there uh, can they come upon, Rich? I mean, it ha what happened to me was I was driving with my son in the car and I was listening to his music and I said, oh my God, this music sucks. Is this me? Man gets older, starts to hate new music. I know. Right. It's a headline, front page A1, no doubt about is it. Is this me? Is this me? You know, am I old now? So I don't know. Oh, surely the children must be wrong to quote The Simpsons, but continue. Yeah. But there is new music I do like, but there's a lot of new music I don't like. It's like the rec And I think it's driven by technology. I'm not blaming. I just think once you lose a long play record, you lose a whole different register. And you lose it because the technology doesn't support it. And you had it because the technology did support it. So. But basically, you know, I sort of thought that that thing where these records by the Stones and not just the Stones, you'd wait for them and you'd like wait for them like I never waited for anything in my life. And you'd think this this record would basically determine your whole summer, you know, and what you felt about things and kind of change your life and be with you. And that urgency and feeling like it was important and there was a cutting edge and you could be on that cutting edge for me personally that I was at Rolling Stone, working at Rolling Stone when Kurt Cobain died. And to me, that was the last time. I mean, after that, I didn't, I felt like that moment of the, like, you know, it's almost like the way it has been with computers the last 20 years. Like, what's next? What's iPod going to, what's the Apple going to do next? You know, that energy was in, was in music. 
of what's going to come next, who's going to reinvent this thing. And I sort of felt like that had never really been, that whole moment, that whole era had never really been celebrated, you know, eulogized, obituary written, because no one really acknowledged that it ended because it just kind of faded away. And I thought like I have the ability to step back and tell the whole story and get this big picture because I had this personal experience, because it was so important to me, I've kind of been working towards it. And I felt like in a really weird self-aggrandizing way, it could be like, you know, war and peace of the pop age because the Rolling Stones span such a great period of time and they're involved with so many of the most interesting people of their time that if you told their story, you would tell the story of all these other people and you get this huge canvas and this huge panorama and a big epic. And the way into it is me as a kid overhearing this music. But the story itself is like, to me, it's like Washington crossing the Delaware. It should be massive and huge and the Rolling Stones, but more than the Rolling Stones, that entire era. And I always think of it as so almost like the biography of the baby boomers written by Generation X. So that's what I'm going for, and hopefully that's what you get. Dig it. The Sun and the Moon and the Rolling Stones. That book is out. You can get it pretty much anywhere because it's the Rolling Stones. You can follow Rich on Twitter at RichCohen2003, and Cohen is C-O-H-E-N. This was a blast, man. Look forward to uh, meeting up with you in person. Definitely. And absolutely. Uh, hopefully get back you get you back on the podcast and we can talk uh, all things vinyl and that project as well. So thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.